So we're going to do what we do every Sunday before we jump into the text. We're going to talk to the kids. Kids, give you a heads up of what this passage is about. Also to the parents uh, and everyone else here, where we're going. So I want to tell you a little story. <clears throat> this is a true story. Uh, there was this really old farmer. He was super poor. Like, super, super poor, really old. Uh, and he's living in this kingdom. And he loves his king so, so, so much that when he uh, brings in his new harvest, you know, he's a farmer and he does carrots. Uh, he got this awesome carrot one year. Uh, he pulls it out of the ground. He's like, that is the most perfect, uh, beautiful looking carrot ever. I'm giving it to my king. And so he goes to the king and he says, oh, king, I want you to have this carrot because I love you so much. And, and the king's like, whoa, that is, the, that is the greatest carrot I've ever seen. And you are so faithful to me. Here's what I want to do for you. Because you've given me this carrot, I want to give you a whole new uh, farm. Like, it's going to be really big, and I'm going to give you people to help work it, and you're going to be in charge of them. It's going to be awesome. And the old man was like, oh, boy. You know, couldn't believe it. Well, then one of the knights, one of the knights is there, you know, in the king's hall, and he's hearing all this. He's like, what? He got that for a carrot? Got it. So the next day, this knight comes to the king and says, Oh, king, look what I've brought you, this magnificent horse. And the king knows what's going on. So the king looks at the knight and he says, Ah, thank you. And that's it. And the knight is sitting there like, What? You know, and then the king says, Oh, I, I get it. I know why you gave me the horse. See, the farmer gave the carrot to me. You are giving the horse uh, to yourself. Do you get it? So did the farmer, did the farmer earn his great reward? Did he earn that just by giving the carrot to the king? Did he earn that big farm? No, he didn't earn it. He just gave the carrot, gave the carrot, gave the king a carrot. Did that knight earn what he thought he should have earned a great reward no no he did not earn it either okay so why kids why did the farmer give the king his prized carrot did he give it to him out of love or did he give it to him to get a big reward kids what do you think why'd the farmer do it love he just loved his king, and he wanted to have his most precious prized possession. Okay, why did the knight give the horse to the king? Out of love or to get a reward? He wanted to get a reward. Okay, so this is the real important question. <clears throat> do you, kids, do you earn your great reward of heaven? Think about it. Do you earn, by like living a really good life, like, God, look at, God, look at my life. This is, this is awesome what I do for everybody. Do you earn your great reward of heaven? No. Okay. Then how do we get it? If you can't earn it by living a good life and by your works, how are we saved? How do we get to heaven? Because of Jesus. It's because of, you get to go to heaven because of works. Just not your works. You get to go to heaven because of a perfect life. 
but it's not your perfect life it's Jesus's perfect life that he lives for you and not only does he live for you he actually takes on the cross our sins uh, which is why we don't earn heaven by ourselves because of our sins Jesus takes those on himself on the cross so we get to heaven because of Jesus here's the last question the big one that we're gonna be talking about today so why live a good life why bother trying to love God love others if that's not how you get to heaven why do it because you love God that's why like the farmer loves his king thinks his king is the best you live a good life not because that's how you're gonna get to heaven you know you're going to heaven because of Jesus and so now we try to love God and we try to love others out of faith in Jesus because we really believe what Jesus has done for us and it's just so awesome to us that we can't help but try and love God and others and we'll fail we'll screw up at times for sure but we try and we try and we try again because of Jesus that's what we're talking about today this spring we're looking at the apostle Paul's first and his second letters to the Thessalonians these are two of his earliest letters I think it's his, his second and third letter that, that he's written to the churches um, and and what he's answering is this big question of Jesus has come and he has died and he has risen and now he's gone back up to heaven and what do we do what do we do now uh, when is Jesus coming back and what do we do between now and then that's what Paul's answering in his first and in his second letter and we're starting the second letter today uh, Paul wrote second Thessalonians a couple weeks maybe a couple months after he wrote the first one uh, and Paul is writing from Corinth he's already sent Timothy back to Thessalonica once to check on the church since they've left <clears throat> we actually don't know the occasion of this letter yet in the passage that we're gonna start with the first chapter that actually becomes more clear uh, next time in chapter 2 but suffice it to say Paul hears that things are actually getting worse so he sends another letter immediately uh, to uh, to help so with that please stand for the reading of God's Word to 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 1 to 12 <clears throat> Paul Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing and therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in uh, the afflictions that you are enduring this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well who who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed to this end 
We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. You probably haven't had a chance to do this yet, but if you look down at the, you know, the next part, you know, just the reading of the word and then the preaching of the word and that little title there, uh, you might, might have noticed the title of this sermon has been recycled, uh, almost word for word. Uh, I don't know if you ever look at sermon titles. My gifting is not sermon titling. Um, I, I know that. Uh, but when I uh, initially I titled this sermon, Are We Thankful? And I thought, wow, that sounds really familiar. And then I went back and looked, and that's the first title. That's the title of the first sermon on First Thessalonians 1 we did months ago. Okay, so, uh, but I blame Paul. I blame Paul for that uh, because he starts this letter the exact same way he started the first letter. I mean, it, it, to the point where you imagine the Thessalonians getting the letter and they start reading it. This is just weeks after they got the first one. They're like, we just wrote the same thing over again. Like, we've already, we know this kind of thing. Uh, but that's intentional. It's intentional, I like my sermon title today, uh, to remind the church what he has already told them as he begins to build on what he has already said. So he starts out thanking God again, again, and he's thanking God again that their faith is growing which is increasing their love for one another. And he thanks God, and he boasts that their faith has also continually produced perseverance in the midst of their sufferings and persecutions and hard stuff. And then we come to it. Verse 5, Paul says that all of this, the Thessalonians' faith, their love, their enduring perseverance— all of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And that right there is like, what, what, is, <clears throat> what does that mean? Uh, what is God's righteous judgment? And how is the church's, their faith, their love, their perseverance, how is that stuff evidence of God's righteous judgment? This is the kind of stuff when we're reading our Bibles, we can read it and be like, what? I don't, I don't know. And just and you just kind of keep going like, ah, oh, he's just throwing out flowery, like, biblically, Bible theology stuff. Uh, this is actually really, really, really important, and we can, we can get it. We can get what he means. And one great way to get at what Paul is saying here is to get at what he is not saying here. Like, what does he not mean? God's righteous judgment here, you immediately hear that and you think, ah, that's the bad stuff. That's the punishment stuff. But that is not, he is not talking about the punishment of the unbeliever. Not in verse 5. He starts to talk about that in the next verse, in verse 6. But here in verse 5, he is talking about who he has been talking about in verses 1 to 4, the believer. So again, how is, that's what he's not talking about, the unbeliever. He's talking about the believer. So how is the believer's faith, love, perseverance in the midst of trials, how is that stuff evidence of God's righteous judgment in their favor. Well, later in verse 8, he does this compare-contrast thing. He contrasts 
the believer with the unbeliever who does not know God and who does not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That gospel that is to be believed over and over and over, he's talking about how they believed it. They believed Paul's testimony about Jesus. That gospel that is to be believed is that the wrath of God, that he talks about in verse 6, for everyone who doesn't believe, that that wrath of God to come, that every sinner justly deserves, it does not fall on the believer because Jesus suffered that wrath for us. And a believer's faith in the gospel, a believer's faith in the gospel of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, that belief inevitably, Paul says, issues in love for God and for others. That faith in the gospel of Jesus inevitably endures through trials. All of that is evidence that God's righteous judgment has been passed in their favor. You may still be scratching your heads. Wait, what? <clears throat> the believer's faith, their love, their perseverance is evidence of God's righteous judgment. Verse 5, that you, God's righteous judgment of, of what? Like, what's the judgment? It's this, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. That loving, enduring faith through suffering that is the badge. That is the sign. That is the evidence by which you will be considered worthy. Not of being judged and punished and condemned, but judged worthy of inheriting the kingdom of God. Which means what Paul is saying is no one will get into heaven without this badge, this evidence of faith, love, perseverance. Doesn't that raise a question? Come on, y'all. Doesn't that, like, raise some hairs on the back of your neck? <clears throat> Are we considered worthy of the kingdom of God simply because of our faith in Jesus or because of this faith and love stuff and perseverance stuff? This is the question that the church has been answering since the beginning, that it still answers today because this is still brought up over and over and over. Are we saved? Here, here, we'll all come together. Are we saved by faith alone? Or are we saved by faith plus good works? Where are we going? Uh, it's at this point where I think James, of the book of James, uh, the younger brother of Jesus, who he was born of Mary and Joseph. Remember, Jesus was just born of Mary uh, incarnation stuff by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, James at this point would be saying, come on! Like, seriously, everyone gives me the hardest time for pointing this up, but here Paul is saying the same thing I said. Because what everyone points up is you get to James chapter 2, especially verse 24, and it says that you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And people take that, and they run with it. It's a good question, but they run with it, and, they, and then some people pit James and Paul against each other because Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, he says over and over and over that people are justified by faith alone and not by works. So everyone freaks out. The Bible contradicts itself. Don't trust it. Can't be true. In seminary, uh, 
where you really do theology is is outside of class at lunch or or in a pub uh or you know just outside of the classroom so one lunch uh, a friend and i were talking about faith and obedience and this friend thought that the bible was totally contradictory on this point uh and he challenged me and he said okay <clears throat> blake are you ever 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 going to start a church service with james chapter 2 verse 24 a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And I, I, I said, why? And he said, because you and I both know it's a contradiction. And I said, in the words of Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, I do not think it means what you think it means. I mean, what is salvation? What is Christianity? A lot of people would answer, uh, it's uh, faith in Jesus equals salvation. Or another way to put it, this was super popular uh, at one point not too long ago, Jesus plus nothing is salvation. Unfortunately, that kind of thinking leads to disaster. It can lead to disaster. It produces, it has produced a pastor who cheats on his wife, leaves his church in shambles, and goes on to another ministry, marrying the person he had an affair with, uh, all the time boasting about their repentance. This stuff produces the kind of person who gossips about their friends, does whatever they want with, you know, sex, uh, who can emotionally and verbally and physically abuse coworkers and friends and their own kids and say it's okay. James and Paul says, well, that is not uh, Christianity. You cannot read James or Paul and say Christianity is just believing in Jesus and nothing else matters. And it's not just James and Paul. Jesus, this is what Jesus is doing when he's constantly calling people to repent, to turn away from their sin, uh, to turn to him. Paul constantly says Christianity is not about lawlessness. It's not. And you are not saved by your works. I mean, this is the offensiveness of the gospel. It's God's promise that he relates to you now not on the basis of how good you are or how bad you are, but on the basis of who Jesus is and how good he is for you. The one who lived a life of total obedience and who also took the punishment earned by us for our disobedience. So Jesus, the one person in all of history, by his obedience Obedience he earned eternal glory. Instead, he is nailed to a cross to suffer the wrath of God for our disobedience. Do you see the scandal of this gospel? That we, we are saved by works. We are saved by works, just not our works. We're saved by the works of Jesus, and he shares his reward with us based on grace. When I said, like, now he relates to us, this is after the fall. After the fall, way back in the day, God relates to his people not anymore through love and justice, but love and grace. Because of our sin, because of our disobedience, the only thing we really do deserve is eternal punishment. That's, that's the whole thing of grace. We have demerited any favor from God. That's grace. 
It's not unmerited favor. It's demerited favor. Uh, so go home. Tell everyone that you know that you are saved by works. Just not your works. Paul says that uh, you are, you're justified. That, what is that word? You're, you're validated. You're acquitted before God as an act of grace based on what Jesus has done for you. His works, not your works. And, and we still need works. Because Paul also says your faith, your faith that Jesus has done it for you, that faith, that belief in the gospel, that faith is justified. It is validated. It is uh, acquitted, uh, validated before God by your works of love and your perseverance in persecution and suffering. So if you think about, like, what's the point of works? Well, let's talk about Jesus. The point of Jesus's works, that's the basis on which he earned heaven for himself and for you. That's the point of his works. And then he gives you what he's earned simply by grace, simply by his, the demerited favor uh, of, of his love. What about our works in this new relationship with God? The function of our works, the point of our works, they attest to the validity of our faith, of what we confess to believe about Jesus. So your obedience and love and persevering, that's the evidence. This is what Paul's talking about in this verse. Listen, your, your faith that issues in love and it issues in this perseverance, that's the evidence. It is true. And that God's judgment that you really are worthy of this is, is true. It's right. Martin Luther, who had such a problem for a long time with James because of James 2, uh, Martin Luther was, in, uh, you know, kind of the one who sparked the, the Reformation way back in the day. Uh, uh, he he finally he finally understood we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So, begs the question: How can you know? How can you know that you have this badge of evidence that God is going to judge as right? And judge you, therefore, is worthy of heaven. Remember, Paul highlights here this badge of evidence at the beginning of verse 3. He says, faith that issues in this increasing love that you have for one another. It's your love for one another. If you have living faith, what he's saying is, if you have real, true, living faith in Jesus, <clears throat> then when you come in contact with people who are hard to love because people are the worst— uh, you will still love them. Your faith will move you in love toward people that are radically different from you, uh, even people that want to hurt you. And in love, you will be able to risk comfort, career. You'll be able to risk approval. You'll be able to risk money, time, even your own life for them. Uh, in this church... And in this city, there are a lot of people wandering about aimlessly, looking for friends, looking for a place to call home. There are people who are struggling with, again, in this church, in the city, people who are struggling with depression. They are struggling with anxiety. They are struggling with work. Either they're overworked or they, uh, there's this loss of work or there's this lack of work. And there are those who are perishing 
without the gospel. And we know, it's becoming more and more clear to all of us, we know that in the face of this pandemic, on the other side of this pandemic, it's becoming clear we are going to have to work. We're going to have to work at regathering again. Regathering around the, the means of grace as a church. Regathering here on Sundays around the word and prayer and sacrament. Regathering during the week with each other. Uh, in each other's homes around the word and fellowship. And, and it's going to become more and more clear the choice that we can either close off our circles, close off our friend groups, and, and, and do this thing of, of it comes down to we can ignore people uh, here, out there, or we work at making room for them again. Making room for one another in our lives and inviting each other into our lives uh, in a welcoming uh, act of love. So increasing our love for one another is evidence of our faith. And how else can you know you have this badge of evidence that God is going to judge, you know, this, this is right and judge you as worthy of heaven. It's not just love for one another, but also verse 4, enduring steadfastness, this perseverance stuff. That stuff of endurance, steadfastness, perseverance, it's the same thing. It's essentially sticking with God. Think about it. Persevering in what? In faith. In who? In Jesus. This perseverance is simply sticking with God. That's loving God no matter what trials, no matter what sufferings may come of this thing of, I'm going to stick with God. I I love Jesus no matter what. This verse 10, are sticking with Jesus and loving him to the very end, that is glorifying to Jesus. Are, Are marveling at Jesus, even in our suffering right now. Marveling at the awesomeness, the love and the grace of Jesus, are marveling him today, tomorrow, and the next day, either until he calls us home or until he comes back, which he might do later today. We don't know. Uh, That is the badge of true faith. And the really, 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 really good news here is that God himself, it says, by his power will work out this loving perseverance in you. That is such good news. Verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. God is working out obedience in you, which looks most supremely like loving God. As in, if you have faith in Jesus, you will inevitably love Jesus no matter what. Some of you, uh, I think I think I may have told you all this before. Uh, some of you all have seen The Greatest Showman, the historicity of it, whatever. It, that's beside the point. This one, this, uh, The Greatest Showman with Wolverine, um, Hugh Jackman, Zendaya, uh, Zach Efron. Um, there's a video. Uh, there's this video uh, about uh, when they were trying to get the movie greenlit. And I, I didn't know this before this video, but supposedly whenever you're trying to have a movie greenlit is when you get all the actors together you go through a rehearsal in front of all these producers hoping that they'll say yeah we should do this take my money and let's do this um 
So there's a video, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, it's the director and Hugh Jackman, and they're describing what happened here, uh, that it took, took eight months to get all the actors and all the producers together in one room. Okay, they the day finally comes. Uh, the day before that they're supposed to go in uh, and go through this performance, and it's a, it's a musical, uh, uh, Hugh Jackman, who's the lead in the movie, calls the director and he says, hey, I've just had surgery to cut uh, cancer out of my nose. Uh, I've got 80 stitches uh, in my face, in my nose. And the doctor said, I absolutely cannot sing tomorrow. And the director immediately says to Hugh Jack, Hugh Jack he says, do not tell anyone. No one is going to come watch you not sing. Uh, and this whole thing will fall apart. We won't have a movie. We'll update everyone last minute as you come in right before we're about to begin. Uh, and, and they're already there, and you'll be there to act all the scenes, and you're understudy that he'll sing your parts. Okay, so they do that, and there's this video of what happens. Uh, the, get, they get to this song in the rehearsal from now on, uh, which is it's the big closing anthem uh, of the movie. Uh, it's where Hugh, Car Hugh Jackman's character, I don't know if this is true, but in the movie, uh, the character repents of all of his selfishness and he reconciles with everyone. And so the video shows the understudy singing Hugh Jackman's part. And the song starts off, you know, they're not going in order of the movie. I think that this is where they start the rehearsals at the end. Uh, and the song starts off really, really slow. And, and Hugh Jackman is right next to the understudy. Uh, and, and you can see uh, that uh, he's listening. He's shaking his head no in, in the way that we all know that means yes. Um, you know, uh, yes. Uh, he's getting really into it. You can see that it's totally, the song is totally affecting him uh, in a good way. And the understudy gets to the first chorus, and Hugh Jackman just starts whispering along. From now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the light. And, and you just tell, he's like, he's, and, and you watch, and Hugh Jackman's face is just, it's just overwhelmed by the song. And by the time the understudy gets to the second chorus, the song, it is too powerful now. And Wolverine cannot help himself. He can't contain himself. And just with full, full string, like, from now on, you know, he just, just, and he goes. And he takes over singing, and the rest of the band and the understudy are just, <gasps> And they all just start going cray-cray. Just nuts. They're all standing on their chairs and tables, and they're belting out this song. And Hugh Jackman, while he's singing his heart out, is holding his nose because all his stitches are coming undone. And he cannot stop. He can't. He is undone with joy and excitement. And the song is too beautiful, and it's too good. And it's too good seeing everyone else enjoying it. And it grips him and he can't help. He can't help but join in. That is a picture of what it is like to experience the gospel of Jesus and believe it. And I'm not saying we're going to walk around on high like that all the time. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But, but when you do see that you were an enemy of God in total rebellion against him, and then you see that he sent his son to obey for you, to live for you, and then to die for you in order to save you, forgive you, and bring you back to himself. When you see the grace of God with, you know, the eyes of faith, it changes you. And you can't.
can't help but respond to God in these tangible acts of love and, and persist in them and keep going in them. And, and it's the simple stuff. It's those simple means of what does it look like to enjoy and love God and be with him. It's those means of grace stuff. It's that stuff of uh, talking to him in prayer, listening to him, reading his, his word, uh, talking about him, sharing and enjoying him with others, sharing and enjoying him here. I mean, what sets off Hugh Jackman is he's looking around at the rest of the cast going nuts. It's us coming together and worshiping Jesus together on Sundays. We, 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 let's ask ourselves, um, if, you, if you were threatened, would you still read your Bible? Like, if you were threatened to not read it. If, if you were threatened, would we still gather for church? And I know, I know those, th- those are theoretical questions. Loved ones, those, those may not be theoretical one day. Those questions were not theoretical for the Thessalonians. Loved ones, those questions are not theoretical for the majority of Christians meeting right now today. The badge of evidence Paul is talking about is simply responding to what we believe about Jesus. And it looks like loving others, and it looks like loving Jesus. Knowing that when you, you screw up loving Jesus and, and loving others, because we will, that there is knowing that there's no condemnation because we are not saved on the basis of our works. We are saved on the basis of Jesus' work, And that gospel, that's what drives us back out again and again and again to try to love others and to try to love Jesus to the very end. Knowing that if persecution does come, God will see us through to the end. So I want to end with this, that we we are not in a mad dash. We are in a long, we're in a long race. Art Carey uh, is a writer uh, for the Philadelphia Inquirer and a sometimes marathon runner. I don't get that. Sometimes I run marathons. Uh, what? Uh, I, it, he wrote about running his 10th marathon back in 1978. And, and the experience, he wrote about the experience of hitting the wall. I'm not a marathon runner, but I get it. Hitting the wall sounds like it's not a good thing. Uh, this is the Boston Marathon. And his goal, he says, his goal is to run this 26 mile and 385 yard race in less than three hours. <laughs> so that means he has to run 26 back-to-back sub-seven-minute miles. I've run a, uh, a mile before under seven minutes when I was in the best shape of my life as a little teenager, and I was sprinting uh, uh, for most of it at the end. He's got to do uh, 26 of those back-to-back. Um, everything is going according to plan. He's out there, he's doing it until mile 20, and he hits the wall. This is how he describes it. By now, the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles is beginning to tell. My stride has shortened. My legs are tight. My breathing is shallow and fast. My joints are becoming raw and worn. My neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. 
half dollar size blisters sting the soles of my feet and I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I've hit the wall. And now the real battle begins. Up the first of many long inclines, I start to climb. One, two, one, two, one, two, right, left, right, left, right, left. I keep watching my feet move one after the other, hypnotized by the rhythm of the passage of the asphalt below, shoulder cramps, leaden legs, seething blisters, dry throat, empty stomach. Stop, stop, keep moving, must finish. A radio listening spectator reports that the race is over six miles away. Bill Rogers has won again. His ordeal is done. The most intense of my own is about to begin. Heartbreak Hill, the last, the longest, the steepest, the half mile struggle against gravity designed to finish off the faint and faltering. Hundreds of people stand along the side of the hill watching urging the walkers to jog, the joggers to run, the runners to speed on to Boston. Slowly, ever so slowly, the grade begins to level out. The last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners, their eyes riveted catatonically to the ground, trudge along in their bare feet, holding in their hands the shoes that have blistered and bloodied their feet. Others team up to help each other, limping along, arm in arm, like maimed and battle-weary soldiers returning from the front, Finally, the distinctive profile of the Prudential building looms on the horizon. I begin to step up my pace, faster, faster, smoother, smoother, suppress the, fa suppress the pain, finish up strong, C careful not too fast, don't cramp. I can see the yellow stripe 50 yards ahead. I run faster, pumping my arms, pushing off my toes, defying clutching leg cramps to mount a glorious last gap. Kick, 40 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards, cheers and clapping. 10 yards, finish line, an explosion of euphoria. I'm clocked in at two hours, 50 minutes, and 49 seconds. My pace is, uh, my place is 1,176. I find the figures difficult to believe, but if they're accurate, then I have run the best marathon of my life. Now, while times and places are important and breaking a personal record is thrilling, especially as you grow older, the joy, the real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing. Do what you have set out to do. This is what Paul is saying that we are doing in the church in this life. Against all opposition from ourselves, from others, against persecution, against the wall. And what's important is that you finish. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we praise you uh, and we praise your son as our Lord and as our Savior, as the one uh, who uh, has done what we cannot do, uh, but has done it for us. And because of him, uh, we will be able to endure because you are at work within us, that we will be able to persevere, that we will be able to increase day by day our love for one another. And Lord, and that you will hold fast to us so that one day we can finish the race. Father, we don't know if that's going to happen before you come back or uh, before uh, we come to you, but we know either way that you've got us. Help us to look to Jesus. And in looking to Jesus, would you work out this love for one another?
would you work out our love for you day by day, one day at a time, that we would not stop going. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.